Dr. Smith is going to lead us in prayer this morning, so let's join with him. I just learned that you don't come in and shake hands with the speaker because you, you wind up having to give the prayer. But uh, that said, uh, I think I'll try this out today, although I'm not a very good public prayer man. You'll do fine. But I will say one thing. Uh, I'm certainly glad to see John again. Uh, I value this class uh, tremendously uh, over the years, uh, and uh, I want to thank God for that. Uh, there's another thing I want to thank God for is that uh, my uh, back surgery has turned out very, very well. Uh, and I want to thank God for that. Uh, and so uh, may we all learn something more from John David as we always do. Amen. Amen. Thank you, sir. Okay, now you're going to be my runner today because young people never get tired. Is that correct? So what you will do is run when somebody wants to talk, you have to run to the table and sweetly hold the mic in front of them, which then what they'll do is they'll go. <laughs> and they'll get, yeah, so just hold it there sweetly and eventually they'll get used to it. Okay. Hey, good morning, everyone. Um, I just let you know that uh, this is an interactive class. It always is. And we do like to have your comments broadcast through the mic. So if you do want to say something, uh, wave at me. You can interrupt. It's not interrupt. I don't mean to say it that way. You can interject at any time when I'm talking, ask questions. There's no such thing as a dumb question in this class. And uh, I think I do a better job uh, as an instructor when I am interacting with people and they're asking questions when they trust me enough and trust one another than when I'm just up here, you know, talking for 45 minutes. So I really strongly encourage you, feel free to ask questions or bring comments to bear on what we're studying today. And my friend will be at your table before you even know it, and you can speak right into the mic. Okay, I got on the board here today uh, what we are talking. The topic uh, for this morning is uh, chapter one in this book that I have put together. Uh, and uh, I want to comment uh, today the class is returning to God as agape love. And so this, is, this might be considered to be the heart of the book, I think, <coughs> in a lot of ways. It's one of the shortest chapters. And today what I want to do is give you sort of the theological background of what are con I consider to be conclusions that are in this book. And I, I always struggle as a teacher uh, I think my preference is to give people all of the information from the Bible and nurture them along so that they come with me and come to their own legitimate conclusions, not just my conclusion. Good morning. We have beautiful young people rolling in. <laughs> you can come sit up at this table because these people up here are really old and they need some... <laughs> Um, I prefer to see people grow as it were with me and think through. However, I've learned over 40 years of education that also people sometimes just want to have a point of view given to them and then they can bounce off of it. So, you know, after a lot of advising and talking with people, I came to the conclusion I was going to write this book conclusionarily as a conclusion, as if I really know what I'm talking about, and uh, I hope I'm doing a good job of telling the truth here. But in the classes that we meet, I don't want to just go over the chapter. I want to show you the deeper theological background that led to the conclusions so that we can put the two together. So having said all of that, uh, this is what I want to talk about this morning, and any uh, comments that you have, I'm welcome to hear. We want to start with Jesus. He's going to be the center of this class today. And we're going to look at what he said uh, about love when the older covenant was still in effect. Now, this is when Jesus was still on earth. And when I say that Jesus at this point was functioning as a rabbi, I'm not declining to believe that he's also the God human. But 
there's no doubt that the most prevalent way that Jesus was addressed when he was here in his body on earth was what? What term did, was he frequently called? Rabbi, okay? And that's just the Jewish word for teacher. And they didn't mean just teacher. Rabbi was an exalted status. I mean, it, you had to qualify to have this title put on you. And it meant you were a total master of the Jewish literature. And uh, you could get that mastery or that title two ways. You could go to school formally, usually in Jerusalem, with the religious leaders of the day and go through their program, which was quite intensive. And one of the notable characters of the New Testament actually went through that experience and had that formal education. Can anyone think of who that might be? Paul, yes. He was a formal product of the intense Judaistic education that scholars went through. His teacher, does anyone remember who it was? Gamaliel. And Gamaliel is regarded as one of the seven greatest rabbis in Jewish history. So Paul had a world-class formal education in Jewish studies. I would say the equivalent of a PhD. So he would have been considered a rabbi. Now there's another way that you can get the, the, the title. And that's the way Jesus did it. And how did he do it? <laughs> he wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, he popped out of the womb, uh, quoting Isaiah 7:14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. <laughs> now remember, Jesus is, to we're told in the scriptures that even though our theological beliefs say that we believe that the incarnation happened, that God became a human, it also frequently tells us that Jesus was truly human, and it tells us very clearly that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. He grew. So that means that Jesus uh, put himself in a context so that he would really experience human life the way we do, and that means he moved along progressively learning about God. And we don't know that magical, mystical line when he crossed and came to believe that he was not just grooming himself to be a teacher, but he was also destined to be Messiah. I, the Bible, Bible is relatively silent about when he crossed that line. But it's just logical to believe that, in fact, at one point he didn't conceive of himself as the Messiah when he was four. Probably not. He may have been told comforting stories about, from his mom and dad about his special role. And I don't know. They, they'd raised him just like any other parent does. You bring your kid along and you give information, Right. Don't your parents do this? They give you information and they bring you along. They don't tell you everything all at once, right? Mm -hmm. Like, did you ever ask them where you came from? <laughs> what did they tell you? <laughs> God! Oh, God, okay! And uh, there's my point. <laughs> okay, so, you know, and then gradually Jesus was brought along just like all kids are and he's immersing himself in the Torah. He's up there, what little town did he grow up in? Bethlehem. Uh, uh, well, he was born in Bethlehem, but where did he grow up? In a little town called Nazareth. Now, I'm not sure that you really realize this, but Nazareth was regarded, regarded as the hillbilly heaven of ancient Israel. Do you realize that? I mean, even one of his own disciples, when he first met Jesus, said what? When hearing that we found the Messiah from Jesus of Nazareth. They said what? Can anything good come out of that hole? They might as well have said. Um, so, um, no, it's up in northern Israel. It's way up in the north. It's, it's about 150 miles north of Jerusalem, which would be quite a hike. I mean, you can go to Israel today, modern Israel, and you can leave Jerusalem in the morning and be in Nazareth in the early afternoon. But in his day, that was a big hike. Well, there's well, there a city right next to Nazareth called Sepphoris, Sepphoris, where a lot of building and a lot of construction work was done. It was a really a cosmopolitan meeting place because the Romans had Caesarea, their headquarters up in northern Israel. So Nazareth and Sepphoris were the cosmopolitan crossroads, uh, but still, 
that was going on, but Jesus is located in this little Nazareth village. So where did he learn? How did he learn? How did he get his rabbinic credentials? In his little local synagogue with his little local rabbi, we can envision Jesus drilling through the Torah, and it turns out that he is like one of these little Jewish kids that many Jewish people to this day look for. They're called, there's a term for them I can't recall right now, but they, they're little Jewish geniuses. And the rabbis look for them so that they can move them into the formal education of studying Torah. And there, there's many of them down through the ages that they have found, and they'll call them the genius of Lutz. And everybody in the whole Jewish community will know about this uh, prodigy, this kid. And I, I remember about 10 years ago, there was an article in the Cleveland Plain Dealer where this Jewish kid was getting ready for his bar mitzvah. And he was um, 12 years old. He was going to be bar mitzvahed when he turned 13. And he, to get ready for his bar mitzvah, he was memorizing the Torah, memorizing the first five books of the Bible. Now, if you want to get your head around that, find Genesis and go to the back of Deuteronomy. That's what he was doing at age 10, 11, 12. And he was already uh, mostly through um, the book of Numbers and was just getting ready to start on Deuteronomy. And he was, gonna, he was very confident, I'll be done with Deuteronomy by my bar mitzvah. So now you have a 12-year-old kid who's got the entire Torah memorized. Now, if a modern kid can do this, we must think what? Back in Jesus' day with no um, iPhones, pads, internet, TV, radio, CDs, nothing. Here's a young kid up there in the hills of Nazareth completely drilling into and mastering a text. So one of the things that the Jewish leaders said to him when he uh, emerged, they asked the question, how does this man know all this? How does he get this learning? Since he never studied, and they don't put with us, in the text shows just how absolutely egocentric they were because their idea was if you haven't studied with us in Jerusalem I mean there's just no way that you could really be a scripture scholar but they couldn't deny something about Jesus' teaching which was what? what? What they could not deny when Jesus taught was that he knew what he was talking about he, had, he exhibited a total mastery of the text and many times the interactions that you read in the Gospels between the religious leaders of the day and Jesus, it may sound odd when you read it on paper uh, because we're, we Gentiles aren't really kind of used to the rough and tumble interaction that Jewish people do when they do this thing called talking Torah. That's what they call it. And they take a text and I mean, they go at it. And it's almost like, uh, Jack, it's, it's like a legal, it's like legal analysis. It's like law school. And everybody is uh, taking these texts and just working out the implications of it. And they're, it's sometimes it, if you read the Gospels, it seems like they're doing what? They're fighting. They're, they're, they're really arguing. They're not being very nice like we would in America. But that was their process, and they were not ap apologetic about it. That was the way they found truth. So when Jesus comes along and he starts teaching the Bible, uh, the religious leaders of the day have no other option to conclude what? We have no idea where this guy picked all this stuff up, but it's amazing that he can stand with us, he can talk with us, he can teach the Bible, we must call him at least what? Rabbi. We may not can agree with him. So this first story, I want you to turn to Matthew 22 now. Jesus on love, older covenant, is a classic text that shows us the Jewish process of the day. This is very typical uh, talking Torah. And the reason that Jesus is 
being addressed is that they recognize he's a rabbi, but they're also trying to do something. And you'll pick this up from the text. I'm going to start at verse um, 34 of Matthew 22. And I'm going to read down to verse 41, or 40. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had put the Sadducees to silence. Now, the previous story tells an interchange between Jesus and this group of religious leaders known as the Sadducees. And they had certain points of view about the resurrection and the afterlife. And Jesus had, in quote, refuted them in a public debate and shown at least to some people's satisfaction that the Sadducees were wrong. So here we have all these different sects, the Presbyterians, the uh, what? Methodists, the Baptists, all these different denominations. And in the middle is Jesus, and they're all swirling around him, and they all have their agendas and their cardinal truths. And they're all trying to get to see if Jesus agrees with them. Or if not, then how can they trick him and refute him publicly and thus discredit him as being a legitimate rabbi? So that's the dynamic that's going on, which the gospel writer reflects for us. When they heard that the, Pharise when the Pharisees heard that he put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered together. What do you think they did when they gathered together? They got together to figure out a way that they could entrap him in a public discussion and thus discredit him. Okay, so one of them, which was a, what's your text say? A lawyer. Sorry for the lawyers in the crowd. It doesn't mean to be negative against lawyers per se. It means somebody that's been trained in Jewish law and is equivalent to a lawyer today would know every bit of the Jewish law. So they put this learned person up and he asked a question but the gospel writer interprets for you the dynamics that are going on. You might think that's biased but let's give him a credit of the doubt, a benefit of the doubt that he's telling the truth. What was the person really doing? What does your text say? Testing. Some might say tempting trying. Now, yeah, that could be really negative and hostile, or it could be what? <clears throat> All right, we're going to really put it to this guy and check him out, and this is part of the Jewish tradition. You don't just believe. You investigate. You probe. You dig. You ask questions. You determine whether somebody's really of God or not. So, at least we know. What we do know is whatever the guy's true motives were, what the person wasn't doing was just rolling over and believing anything that Jesus said. So he asked him a question. Master, what, which is the great commandment in the Torah? Okay. What's, what's the greatest one? How many laws are in the Torah? Does anyone remember? 600, close, 613. So this, uh, this person wants to know a simple question. Of the 613 commandments that Yahweh has given to us, which do you think is the absolute greatest? Okay. So now leads to a pretty surprising answer. If you asked, what do you think? If you asked most people in the country today that go to church, What's the, what's, where, which are the greatest commandments or where is the essence and the heart of the commandments? What do you think most people would say? I think most people would say the Ten Commandments. Now you gave the answer that Jesus gave. But most people would say, oh, well, of course, the Ten Commandments. Now let's see what Jesus says. Uh, verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Who knows where he got that? That's, that's the Shema. You know, remember where it is? Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's the great creedal confession of the Jewish faith. It's called the Shema because the first word is listen. Why don't you go back there and look at it? It's Deuteronomy 6.4. And the text starts out, hear, 
O Israel. And the, Greek, the Hebrew word is shema, and it means pay attention to this. Listen to this very carefully. Drill into this. Not just, you know, listen. But like, really pay attention. Shema. And what's the text say? Verse 4. You shall. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one true and living God. And what shall you do? Love that God who exists with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay? So Jesus gives this answer. Now what's interesting about this? What's the first observation? Well, he's quoting scripture on the Pharisees' home turf. Yes, he's, he's actually... Um, he knows the text. He's claiming to know the text as a rabbi. Uh, and he's claiming to be able to give an answer. I can go through the whole 613 th- commandments and I have penetrated and gotten down to the quiddity, the essence, the heart of the matter. This is the most important commandment. So he selects one out of the 613. But what, so that's what we've got going on here. But what's interesting about it is what? He does not quote one of the Ten Commandments. This is not one of the Ten Commandments. So what he's actually doing is, if we have the Ten Commandments here like this, then we have how many more commandments in the rest of the Torah scroll? 603. So he's saying, okay, now I know the traditional way of looking at things is that these are more important than these, but now he pulls a little twisty And he goes into the Torah text from Deuteronomy and says, no, actually, number one isn't one of the ten. It's the Shema. Isn't that interesting? So just as a side question to all of you, for you to think about, why why does everyone make such a big production out of the ten when the master himself said, it's not the most important? (laughs) <laughs> the movie, of course. The movie. Yes. Well, you can't keep the one that he gave and break the rest. You mean when he gives you this one? You love the Lord. If you, do, if you did if this. If you did this, you don't break the other. Exactly. That, that's why it's the greatest. That's right. That is exactly right. But how, just as an interesting question to stimulate our minds, then why didn't God put the Shema as number one in the ten. If this is the greatest, why didn't God, you know, make it easy for us? Uh, okay, you think they're kind of like a how-to. Some Jews have worked it out so that they say each of the ten commandments is kind of like a heading or a category. I'm not going to write it all out. And of which you can fit the other ones underneath. It's like a Reader's Digest version. It doesn't mean to be in, in implied as uh, more important. It just means this is a category, a way of organizing the rest of them. Well, what is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. In fact, the first four commandments are uh, about God. You shall have no other gods before me. What's different between you shall have no other gods before me and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? What's the difference? This second one is positive. The first one is what not to do. And, you know, I mean, there's been all these theories of why God didn't put that, but these tend to be what? what? What not to do. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you could, tra- you could try. This is what Paul concludes. Susan's comment is, if you don't keep this, the rest of it's sort of irrelevant. And of course, that's what the whole thesis of the New Testament turns out to be, that w- we don't do that. And so therefore, any pretensions on our part that we keep the law, which is what the Jews were 
claiming at that time, and when I, I don't mean that as a negative against the Jews, we all do it, but claiming to keep large chunks of this and not do this from Jesus' point of view is what? It's taking a test and failing. And you, I've told you guys this before about the two Malone students that I found in the back of my class one day arguing about something, and one of them said to the other, well, at least I didn't flunk it as bad as you did. <laughs> so um, when you get down to it, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is something that is concluded that we don't do. So we don't keep the law. Yes, sir. That's called, the, that's called the developmental hypotheses, that God wrote the Bible, and Paul does this in Galatians, he explains this. He says God wrote the Bible as if he was writing it to little children, and he was tutoring them to reach what is called majority, when they, they come into their own understanding, their full adulthood. And that all of this stuff in the Bible, whole or covenant, was uh, children's literature, raising children's literature. And then when, when the master comes, then we, we move into the next stage of this is God's conclusion for adults now. That, that's really a good insight. Okay, so Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart. And then he adds an addition, though. He says what? The second one, the second greatest one is an implication. Is like it, he says. It's, it shares an affinity, a likeness with it. And it is what? You shall love your neighbor. How? All right. And where's that from? Anyone know? Do you have a cheater Bible headline? Uh, you have one of those uh, indexes in there that tells you where the text is quoted from? Where's Jesus getting this stuff? Leviticus 19.18. Now go there and look at it. <clears throat> Just so that we see what Jesus is doing here. He's a rabbi. He's now claiming to give an authoritative look at the way things should be viewed. And you get there. And you find what? Love God with your whole heart. The second one is love your neighbor as you love yourself. Again, the second one is not found where? It's not found in the Ten Commandments. So if Jesus knows what he's talking about, he has thoroughly refuted the notion that the Ten Commandments are the most important commandments. Completely demolished that viewpoint. And it's strange to me that we don't seem to go along with Jesus on this. We keep going, hearkening back to another way of looking at things. Now then he makes the preposterous claim, what? The conclusion of the argument is what? I've answered your question. The greatest commandment in all of the 613 is to love God with all your being. And the second is like to it. It's love your neighbor as you love yourself, neither from the 10. What's, what's, like, what's this one like to this one? What's the likeness? They both involve love, okay? And so now Jesus has condensed the entire Torah to be what? A story about love. It's, it's a document that teaches us about love. Love is the most important thing. And uh, what does he then conclude the whole uh, argument on? Uh, he says, on these two hangs what? All right, so it's kind of like, um, this is a big, um, I'm going to make a scale here. And this is one container, and that's another container. And the scale is, you can kind of see it, right? And this one's going to be a little heavier, because he said it's the first. But loving your neighbor, it's entwined. And then he says, on these two commandments hangs all of the law the entire 
corpus of the body of law and all of what? All of the Older Testament. So he's done what academics call uh, a complete and absolute synthesis. He's saying, I can synthesize and reduce down to its absolute core essence uh, the quiddity of an entire body of literature. It's all about loving God and loving your neighbor as you love yourself. And that's what the whole Bible is about. Well, what do you think about this? Oh, thank you. So even now we've gotten down to the core, Barb's point is, since this seems to be impossible to do, what we found out is, yes, it's nice to know that the essence of what God wants us to do are these two things, but we also find out what? They can't do it. We can't really do it. Of course, that's the entire thesis of, yes, sir. Okay, now we're really cooking with Holy Spirit gas. Now, what, what is that final? That's the, the graceful gift of, of Jesus for our salvation. All right, so, and that would be exemplified, first of all, most of all, in the greatest way, by Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And I brought my pet lamb today to remind you of this. What does the New Testament say that the essence of agape love is? Sacrificial love. It's giving yourself totally, altruistically, without any reservations, for someone else's benefit. And this is exemplified, above all, in Christ's death on the cross. The heart of what? What do we call this belief system? That we think his death on the cross did something. What do we... Took our place, but that whole event did something. It, it leads to justification. Uh, starts with A. Atonement. Is that what you meant? Atonement. At one minute. It brought about at one minute. It brings about justification. We're justified by our faith in Christ's death for our sins, not by our performance keeping the law. But this is all these things. They're all put into the, under the heading, according to the apostles, of what? This, all of this stuff. Justification, atonement, sacrifice. Second part of the Bible. The new covenant. The new covenant. Yes, John. Okay, all this legal stuff. Don't give it to him, just hold it there. <laughs> I will stop there because I would say too That's much dangerous. in anger about the legal mind that doesn't, I'll stop. No, 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 I thank you for saying that because my point here today is not to enumerate all of the fancy theological jargon that's associated with this event. I've told you before, German theologians call this the Christ event. It's an event. It's something Jesus did. And then we, we put all these um, uh, theological words attached to atonement, uh, justification, propitiation, fine and dandy. And the, the Eastern people say, nah, it's not so important you put a label on it. Just experience it. However, you can't ever get away from this one fundamental construct that this event instituted what? A new covenant. It's a new arrangement. It's a new agreement. It's fundamental to all of the understanding of the Bible. Something new has happened because of this. The new covenant was initiated with Jesus' death on the cross but it wasn't realized until what event? 
The resurrection is part of it. Had there been no resurrection, there would not have been any completion or realization of the new covenant. What, when was the new co covenant realized? Pentecost! Yes. Which is what? A 50-day period. So from Jesus' death to Pentecost was 50 days, and it took God all this time. I hate to say it that way, but it was God's plan to take this time, not that God couldn't have done it another way. But this is what, and what happens on Pentecost? Okay, and I'm going to amend this and cut to the chase. It's not just the Holy Spirit, but the entire Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for the first time in human history, comes to indwell people on a permanent basis. Back here in the older covenant, before this event took place, when the law was still in place, the Holy Spirit is always reported as doing what? Coming on people. In other words, empowering them from the outside. And that's no, nothing to sneeze at. I mean, that's, that's prize to have God on you, animating you. Well, maybe it would cause you to sneeze, I don't know, but... <laughs> I mean, it's nothing to deprecate. But when we come into this era, now the difference is, it's the Holy God's not on us, God's where? In us. And so now we come to the heart of it. John, this is New Covenant teaching, John 13, 34. What did the Master say? was going to be realized because this new covenant was now coming into place. This is more of a prediction at that point because he said this back here right before his crucifixion at the Passover dinner. What does he tell his disciples? I'm giving you a new commandment. What is it? I want you to love one another as I have loved you. And of course, he's saying that right in the shadow. He's just a day away from doing this event. So let's cut to the chase. He's now telling them, I have a new commandment for you. And that makes sense because he, Jesus' mind is moving to the new covenant. The old covenant had commandments. The new covenant has how many? Man, we got, we got down to it from 613 to 1. And, and, and what do you, right, hold on, Dr. Smith. That one commandment is, now all I want you to do is this love that I'm going to display, the sacrificial death on the cross. This is the way, the normal way I want you now to interact with all people. Now, before you ask the question, let me ask you all a question. What's harder, to love your neighbor as you love yourself or to love everybody the way Jesus loved us when he died on the cross? I mean, if you had to like, be really strictly judged on this, evaluated on this, which would you choose to, to have God evaluate you on? Loving others the way you love yourself or loving others the way Jesus loved us? Which, which path do you want to be judged on? And most people would say, well, I'll take loving as I love myself because I, there's no way I can do this. Don't you agree that there's been a jump up? There's been a move forward. Yes, Dr. Smith. As human beings, we're not that bright to, to do that. We need the individual saying, love your mother and love your father and so forth and so on. Yeah. Uh, we would have never made it back there I, without I, those numbers. I agree. You're, you're now restating nicely the evolutionary hypotheses that Paul develops in Galatians. He says that when the, when 
the law was given, the Israel and the rest of the human race was in their childhood. That's how God looks at it. And God gave them all these rules like you, we give our children. And then there's a, everybody that's had a child, uh, there's a certain point that you say to your kids stuff like what? After they've been instructed in all of the fundamentals that you want them to learn, at a certain point you say what to them? What? Uh, you, okay, you're on your own. <laughs> uh, before that, uh, before that traumatic event, you say things like, Do your parents ever say to you, you know better than that? Do they really do that? What they're saying to you is what? You've already been taught these things. You should be, you should be figuring these things out and moving along. So the whole law was this evolutionary tutoring, teaching program specified down to every little nuance of life I mean, one of the laws that cracks me up in the Torah, and they make a pretty big deal about it in the book of Leviticus, is if you build a little parapet or a little extension on your house, or you have a little garage with a flat roof on it, and you want to go up there and hang out, the Torah tells you, you must build a railing all around it. Why? So why would you care if some idiot falls off your roof? Well, yes, you could look at it as, I don't want to get sued, but if you looked at it positively, you're supposed to love your neighbor how? You don't want that to get hurt. You don't want to, it's, you want, it's an extension of, hey, I got to really think ahead of my neighbor's well-being, so I'm going to build a little fence around my uh, flat roof uh, garden area in case no one falls off, because then they'll be hurt. But it all traces back to what? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So, yes, Dr. Smith, this is all evolutionary, but now God has taken us into the new covenant. And so now things have gotten uh, moved forward. We're supposed to love everybody in the same way that Christ did. Now, here's where the good news comes. If you think you can do this on your own, uh, you will be sadly mistaken. And this is the heart of the New Testament story. So now I want you to find Romans 5.5. 5. What I'm going to show you is just the essence. 5.5, 5, the essence of three new realities that the new covenant leads people into or is offered as possible. The first one's Romans 5.5, 5, and I need somebody to read, and as soon as somebody says they will, find them and take the mic to them. Who would like to read this? And uh, Ricky will do it for us. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Very simple text. What does it tell us? It, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good thing to have hope, and hope isn't going to disappoint you. Hope in Christ will not disappoint you, because at present, he says, some, God has done something for every person that's in the new covenant. What has God done for them? And poured out the Holy Spirit. We, we know that, but the Holy Spirit does something specifically inside the person, inside of their being, that's in the new covenant. Not just, I mean, this is odd to say, not just God, but something else God does when, when God gets there. Pour something else out into us. In other words, the same love that animated Jesus to go to the cross, that same love gets put into us, and it makes sense. Because that love is where? It's actually in Christ. So when Christ comes in, then Christ gives you an additional gift. What does Christ give you? 
agape the way that Christ alone can do it. So, yes, Susan. Yes. Now, uh, in fact, I'm going to use your book that you loaned me. Uh, Susan loaned me this book, and it's called The Psychology of the Spirit. And one of the chapters in here, the author talks about the horrible self-view that the author had. He had a, you know, in his viewpoint, he had a horrible childhood. And he, if, he, if he would have loved other people as he loved himself, if that was his ability, he says he couldn't do it because he didn't love he didn't really love himself. And no matter how healthy you are, I mean, this, he, he says he was fairly ill, um, and God healed him. But no matter how healthy you think you are, if you're just trying in your own power to love other people as you love yourself, you'll never be able to escape your own self-reference and your own natural abilities. And if you don't love yourself very much, like probably most of us really don't, or are there, uh, those of you out there are like fully adjusted, completely mature, totally realized adults that have a proper view of yourself? <laughs> Please see me afterwards because I need help. <laughs> so this is a very, I mean, it's a noble ideal, but it's limited by our own flaws. This is a totally different approach. What's happening here? There's three people coming into you, and they are supernaturally infusing. I mean, the metaphor here is what? They do what? It's pouring. So, but however you want to look at it, this is a supernatural infusion from another source, from God, which then enables you to experience that. And John, not develop a theory about it, just experience it. Yes, but. For example, Mother Teresa picks up dirty, filthy babies and she feels disgust for them, but she believes she is picking up Jesus Christ. Now, Emotionally, she says she was empty. But what a saint. <clears throat> well, let's just ask a question. What was Jesus' emotional state when he was in the garden? Having a nice day? Perfect peace? He was stressing out to the place where he was exhibiting um, hemodriosis, which is a phenomenon when you actually start sweating blood. He's about ready to stroke out. He's not having a good day. So the, this is, John, the, the teaching here is this is a supernatural love that is beyond our human capacity and it can be given to us on what grounds? This is the important thing. It's from the Holy Spirit as in, on what grounds though? Because we deserve this? It's a pure gift. It's, it's like, it's part of the package of entering the new covenant. It's part of the experience of coming into Christ. You receive a, an additional supernatural enhancement. Yes, sir. Well, it's, it's, it's both. It, when this starts to happen to a human being, some of it is spontaneous. Some of it's extemporaneous. It's just flowing. But then there's other times, is, as the whole New Testament goes on to say, is that it's always easy for us who are being called to ever higher levels of experience. And, you know, this is the standard. So how crazy is Jesus? I'm all in, and I'm going to go all the way, and I'm going to love you right to the death. I'll give my life for you. Now, what we do, Dr. Smith, is we enjoy one another over pumpkin donuts and cider. And we talk about all of the affairs of our life, and we like one another. But then there's that certain point in time with our fellow Christians and with other human beings that we get to the stage and we say, what? I'm sorry, I can't go there. 
I can't, I can't be involved with a relationship with this person. I don't, love, I don't like this person. I don't feel anything for them. And of course, at that point, Dr. Smith, the apostles then keep calling us to say, look, with your problem, our problem is, you're, try, you're back here trying to love people with your own power. And that can only go so far. If you let God and God's agape fill you, supernaturally, you will find yourself able to love even people like the idiots that live next door to you. And I say that completely tongue-in-cheek because I am one of the idiots on my street. Okay, there's people that have to love me even though I'm an idiot. And it's supernatural. Now, before we run out of time, I want you at least to see the second one. This is another New Testament, New Covenant reality. It's a shift. It's a paradigm shift. It's going up. And this, this is, I started with the easy one. This is the one that really is harder for people. Now, I want somebody to read that while I come back over here to the Greeks and talk about their version of love. Somebody read it for us, please. First John four eight. All right, here it is. Go back there with the mic and have him say it one more time. <laughs> now we find something out. What do we find out? Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. God is agape. Now, us Westerners, we got to take some time with this verse. What does that mean? God is agape. Present tense. It's present tense. Say again, Susan. It's a state of being. It's part of God's nature. This is what God is. God is agape. It's not God has agape. It's God is. This is not a possession of God. This is the essence of God. This makes, then, it true that what we used to think of love as an action, an attitude, is actually, in its highest sense, not that at all. Love really is what? A person or a being. And I have to think about this for a while. Yes? Beautiful. And, and of course, Les Miserables is the essence of the story, right? It's somebody being compelled by the love of God because they've been shown grace to ever, ever, ever increasing levels of altruistic giving. Just smoothing your hair? Okay. So, somehow, love is no longer just construed as an attitude or a behavior. Love is now what? An actual entity. A being. Where is that being? Inside of us. So actually when the master tells us, I want you to love other people as I have loved you, actually what the master is asking us to do is what? Let me, who lives in you, let me love through you the idiots that you're associated with. You didn't laugh at that one. <laughs> now this is where it gets profound. How about let me love you inside of you. Let me love you first, meaning each one of you. Let me love you this way. Let me be loved to you. And then, based on the love that you experience with me, you can turn around and let me 
be given to other people through you. What do you think about that? Do you, you're looking at me like I'm a cult leader, so I'm trying to figure out what's going on here. Do you see the difference between over here trying to keep the law and doing the best you can versus what they're really saying? God, who is agape, is living in us, and we can give God to one another. That's what the New Testament is saying. It's not something you can do on your own power. It's a gift. Now, just the final notes before you leave to kind of get your head around this. You know, when the Greeks talked about love, they had these four words. Storge, which is family love. Eros, which is romantic love. Phylos, or philia, which is friendship love. And then they did use, which is where the apostles got this word, they used a fourth love, a fourth word for love, agape love, which they meant divine love, love among the gods, although it was defined differently than the Christians did. So what the Christians did was basically swipe a Greek word, say that in its highest form, this is what Jesus demonstrated, and it was, and that agape now, instead of being viewed as an attitude or a behavior, is actually a person, and that person who is agape is now living inside of you. This is, what is this called when literary people do this? It's called personification. It's when you take what is usually regarded as an abstract thing or a quality, and you make it personal. So if you really want to understand the radical notion of the New Testament, what would it be like if eros, which we just think is romantic love, Valentine's Day love, what if there was actually an entity whose name was Eros? Are you with me? I'm not a cult leader, I promise. What if there was an entity truly named Eros and you could actually have a consultation with that entity, the, the being that stands for romantic love on Valentine, well, right before Valentine's Day, so you could get completely filled with the true being of Eros, and then what? You could let that being live in and through you towards your mate. Would that be a different sort of a Valentine's Day than... Yeah, that would be what, 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 what? That would be really good. It would be really good, yes. I mean, just think about it. That's the radical notion of the New Testament. They're telling us that what we think, what we have been thinking as something that we do is actually a being, a person, and that being has now become personal in the person of Jesus, and he's living inside of us, and that's how we experience agape love. Yes, sir? you love yourself first. How does that fit into this? It fits in it perfectly because that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, the th radical thesis of the New Testament is you're no longer on your own. You're no longer constricted by your own human limitations. You've been offered to have a life experience in the New Covenant that is gift-based rather than reward-based. You don't have to generate this love out of yourself any longer. It's given to you and I made a mistake. I said, it is given to you. What should I have said? He or... However you... They, which sounds weird. The whole trinity has been given to you and they want to love through you. That's, and that's why I pointed out what I learned a lot from this little section that Susan gave me is, right, unless you let the God who is agape love you first, then you're not going to be able to really do that for other, give God to other people. You're going to just be giving them the best you can do as a decent human being, which is better than becoming a murderer, but that's not the best that God has for us. Okay, so I hope this is helpful for you. Uh, God bless you. Let's say a prayer before you go, and then I'll see you next week. Thank you, God, God who is agape. This is profound. And I ask that the Holy Spirit would help each person in this room to be illuminated, including myself, because this is really a beyond mental, beyond beliefs 
reality. This is, this is truly an experience with you. So we ask that you would be who you are in each one of us and that you would free us so that we can let you, as you are, agape, live in and through us with everyone that we meet and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, God bless you. See you next week. Those of you who are not normally normally worship with us, you're certainly welcome to join us. Follow the whole way down. Yeah, and I'm so, yeah, please go go to a service here. Also, I just want to remind you, there is no class tonight, so there was a little confusion about that. We're not having the Sunday evening classes.